be you of spirit adventurous, for it's adventure we be traveling. I am Brett Dillon, and this is the Movie Chronicles. The year be 1937. Find we us a yar sailing vessel, and hie thee to the codbanks for Rudyard Kipling's tale of Captain's Courageous. Director Victor Fleming, script John Lee Mann, Mark Connolly, Dale Van Evany, and Tim Kilpatrick. DOP Harold Rosen, editor Almo Vernon, and music Franz Waxman. Actors Spencer Tracy, Freddie Bartholomew, John Barrymore, Lionel Barrymore, Melvin Douglas, Charlie Grapewin, John Carradine, Mickey Rooney, Oscar O'Shea, Jack LaRue, Sam McDaniel, Wally Albright, Tommy Bupp, Leo G. Carroll, Jimmy Conlon, Lester Dorr, Billy Gilbert, Lloyd Ingraham, and Gladden James. Spencer Tracy hated the role of Portuguese fisherman Manuel. He still took on the part of a Portuguese fisherman later in life for The Old Man and the Sea. You can see him in this movie struggling to find something in the role. It is this struggle that makes watching him so rewarding. This adaptation of Rudyard Kipling's tale includes a prologue not in the book and which takes up a sizable portion of the running time. I think this is to the advantage of the story and its themes. It allows the audience to compare and contrast the development of the Freddie Bartholomew character, Harvey Chain. Unfortunately, this gives Freddie the unenviable task of playing a character who must be hated at the beginning, and then goes through a process that gains our sympathy, until he transforms into a sympathetic character. Note well, it is not the process that gains our sympathy, but the character. The changes made to Rudyard Kipling's narrative are interesting. The opening setup suggests the young hero is morally corrupt. So strong is that impression that, with a shorter running time, it would have rendered his transformation partial. There is also the detailed work in getting the look and feel of the setting correct. This includes a great sailing vessel mixed with some interesting location footage. Harvey Cheney is a bad lad, son of a business tycoon, and so up himself he's lost contact with humanity. Sent to Europe, he manages to fall overboard and is fished up by the schooner Going Mary. They aren't going to lose their livelihoods to return the boy to port. Instead, they make him work his passage home. They can all go home when the hold is full of fish. Harvey is initially upset that he should be made to do demeaning work. He makes friends with the captain's son, Dan, and fisherman, Manuel. The philosophical positions of this pair brings the boy back in line with a more Christian view of society. Manuel, however, dies on the return voyage. Harvey now learns that life is also about death, a theme that is peculiar to find in a children's movie. He is also reunited with his father, who notices Harvey has changed. 
While the film ends happily, I couldn't help thinking that this happiness is transitory. Will Harvey's father still be happy when he finds out Harvey has not only left childish things behind, but also the selfishness that is the guiding principle of capitalism? Director Victor Fleming was born on February the 23rd, 1889 in La Cañada, California, USA, and he died in 1949. Victor's career took the opposite route to that of his mentor, Lloyd Ingraham. He began as a stuntman in 1912 and became interested in camera work. His work as a cameraman came about through his mechanical aptitude. He was repairing director Alan Duane's car and discussed cameras with him. Duane offered him a job as assistant cinematographer. This motivated a career move that saw him work closely with Douglas Fairbanks, starting in 1915. D.W. Griffith roped him in to help shoot Intolerance, 1916. Fleming served in World War I, and at the Versailles Peace Conference, 1919, he acted as President Woodrow Wilson's personal cameraman. After the war, he began to gain credits as a director. Sadly, his reputation today rests on his taking over the very troubled productions of The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind, both 1939. Scriptwriter John Lee Mann was born on the 23rd of August 1902 in Everston, Illinois, USA. He died in 1984. During the McCarthy era, John was an outspoken supporter of McCarthy and his campaign to undermine the U.S. Constitution. In 1959, John formed a production company with Martin Racken. Director of photography Harold Rosen was born on April 6, 1895 in New York City, New York, USA, and he died in 1988. Harold started his career as an actor for Vitagraph in 1905. He quit acting to become an assistant director at Mark Dinterfass Studios and then moved to Famous Players in 1912. He became a DOP in 1915, working for Metro. World War I interrupted this career. Back from the war, he shot himself around various studios before, in 1920, securing a contract with Mary Pickford to shoot films featuring her brother Jack. He went to MGM Studios, where his camera work displayed the uh, talents of blonde bombshell Jean Harlow. He was briefly married to her. In 1935, he moved to England to work for Alexander Corder. He soon came back to the attention of Hollywood through his colour photography. He had found a method to flatten the vibrancy of the Technicolor process so that it more closely resembled a natural palette. Actor Freddie Bartholomew was born on March the 28th, 1928, in London, England, and he died in 1992. Freddie was raised by his aunt. Reading between the lines, his mother couldn't cope with a baby and a husband injured in World War I. He had a precocious talent that landed him his first film role in 1930. He was sent to study the craft of acting to the Italia Conti Academy of Theatre Arts in London and continued to make film appearances. In 1934, 
George Chukor and David Oselznik were in London, looking for a young actor to play David Copperfield. They came across Freddie. He was signed to a seven-year contract, and he and his aunt immigrated to the USA. David Copperfield, 1935, was a huge success and made Freddie a star. He was also lucky in that the studio considered him good enough to team up with their top adult talents, such as Greta Garbo, Victor McLaglen, Tyrone Power, Spencer Tracy and Mickey Rooney. Captain's Courageous was his favourite film. He recalled later, For a kid, it was like one long outing. Spencer Tracy, Lionel Barrymore, Mickey Rooney, Melvin Douglas and I, we all grew very close toward one another in those 12 months. When shooting was finished, we cried like a bunch of babies as we said our goodbyes. The effect of teaming him with the top talent made him the second highest paid child actor of the decade. By 1936, his parents became interested in the money he was making. They attempted to regain custody of him so as to control his income. A seven-year-long custody battle ended with Freddie losing all his wealth and the interest of his parents. In 1937, the matter was so stressful that Freddie took a year off acting, while his aunt tried to renegotiate his contract to cover the extra demands of the lawyer and court fees. By 1942, he was a gangly six-foot teenager whose transition to adult roles was being hurt by the perception that he appeared only in historical dramas, which, with the coming of war, were no longer in vogue. In 1943, he enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Force. This didn't end well. In a training exercise, he fell and injured his back. After seven months of recuperation, he was discharged in 1944. He now attempted to revive his career. No one seemed interested. He toured regional theatres in vaudeville, but still no one noticed. To add injury to insult, Freddie was involved in a devastating auto accident and, in 1946, a disastrous marriage that also caused a permanent rift with his aunt. After an Australian tour, Freddie returned to the USA and shifted his focus to television, where he became a director, show host, and executive. By 1954, he was producing shows, such as The Andy Griffith Show, 1960-68. Freddie retired in the late 1980s. Actor Sam McDaniel was born on January the 28th, 1886, in Wichita, Kansas, USA, and he died in 1962. Sam was the older brother of Etta and Hattie McDaniel. The family formed a traveling minstrel show until 1916, when brother Otis died. This marked the point when the show began to lose money. Sam formed a jazz band in the 20s that played the radio and vaudeville circuit. This led to Hollywood to work for KNZ radio station and led on, naturally, to film work. Naturally, he only played butler, doorman, valet, porter or other servant roles because in the USA, a black in a film could never be portrayed as the equal of a white man. Don't judge him for his Uncle Tom performances, but by the fact that he was good enough to get regular employment. He was the first and only black character to appear in the I Love Lucy TV series. 
which says a lot about those racist times and just how good he was to break through that and other artificially imposed ceilings. Even Hollywood today continues its racist politics. The range of roles for black people have expanded, but the opportunities have decreased. At least fewer people today buy into the racist stereotype of minorities that Hollywood sells. Actor Wally Albright was born on September the 3rd, 1925, in Burbank, California, USA, and he died in 1999. Wally made his first film in 1929 and was soon known around the Hal Roach studio. Get out of the way, Wally, they'd shout. At the end of 1933, the studio's Our Gang series was in a crisis. It was time for a revamp. Wally became one of the new faces. Now, admittedly, he only lasted six films. His leaving was voluntary. He kept appearing in films, usually uncredited, as in the case of Captains Courageous, until 1945, with only two performances in the next decade. Wally went on to become a champion at water sports and ran a successful trucking company. Keep on trucking, Wally. History was full of pigeons coming home to roost. On January the 5th Water levels continued to rise on the Ohio River, leading, in February, to a million people being displaced and 385 people dead. March the 18th a gas explosion in the New London School in London, Texas, killed 295 students and teachers. May the 6th, the German airship Hindenburg exploded as it was landing at Lakehurst, New Jersey, USA. 13 passengers, 12 crew and one landing crew member were killed. May the 10th, a gang, I think the US called them police, shot and killed 10 unarmed demonstrators in Chicago. They were strikers and the police were acting to prevent free speech. July the 2nd, Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan disappeared attempting the first flight by a woman around the world. July the 9th, Fox Studios' vault of silent film was destroyed in a fire. September the 7th, CBS in the US broadcasted a two-and-a-half-hour salute to George Gershwin. December the 12th, May West goes all May West on NBC Radio, which results in her being banned from radio. May West, the woman too hot to be seen on radio. We now turn our minds towards the US conception of England in this adaptation from Mark Twain. The Prince and the Pauper. Directors William Keeley and William Dirtle. Script, Laird Doyle and Catherine Chisholm Cushing. Director of Photography, Sol Polito and George Barnes. Editor, Ralph Dawson. 
Music, Eric Wolfgang Korngold. Actors, Errol Flynn, Billy Mounch, Bobby Mounch, Claude Rains, Henry Stevenson, Bart McLean, Alan Hale, Eric Portman, Lionel Pape, Montague Love, Fritz Leiber, Henry Cording, Clifford Seven, and Leo White. Director William Keeley seems to have trolled the expat Brit Hollywood community for his cast. The mix with Americans creates some weird accents, but this is on par with Mark Twain's novel, which takes a novel twist to history. The Maunch twins managed to keep a tight rein on the overly exuberant Errol Flynn. The first time I saw this film was in a colorized version, and this is the only time I have seen this process and found it effective. The color did actually add to the film. There were still some problems with the process. The movement in the coronation scene proved to be too much for the process to handle. On the minus side, the satiric thrust of Mark Twain's novel is gone. This is replaced with Machiavellian machinations, which tends to distort Twain's criticism of rulers, not just kings, but all people involved in the exercise of power over people. It is the Maunch brothers' portrayal of the everyboy which lifts the film above the level of the potboiler it could so easily have become, aided by the lack of location shooting. There is a sweetness to their performances that could have told against the film. The boys give the sense of the devil in their characters which prevents this. It is finely judged acting. It is the end of an era. Prince Edward is the son of that scoundrel criminal Henry VIII, and Tom Canty is the son of the professional redistributor of other people's wealth, John Canty. One has grown up in poverty under the tutelage of Father Andrew, an unemployed cleric due to Henry VIII's seizure of church assets, while the other has grown up isolated in a world of luxury. One fine day, they meet. Edward is the first to realize they bear a striking resemblance to each other. He suggests a ripper game. They will exchange clothes and places for a day. Tom's behavior, as Edward, convinces everyone he has mental health issues. Everyone that is, except the Earl of Hartford, who sees a chance to seize power. When the king dies, the Earl reveals what he suspects and tells Tom that unless he does as he is ordered, he will be revealed to the court and die a traitor's death. There are makeup problems in this film. Henry VIII's deathbed scene uses theatrical rather than film makeup technique, and the Maunch brothers should have been powdered down between takes. Very distracting shiny noses, you'll notice. With Tom Edward under his thumb, the Earl now orders the captain of the guard to execute Edward Tom. Edward Tom is struggling in the wide world and finds an unexpected ally in Miles Hendon, sword for hire. Miles helps Edward Tom set things to rights before Tom Edward is crowned king. 
Apart from some small criticisms, this is, perhaps, the best adaptation of the Mark Twain novel. Miles Hendon is also the best role Errol Flynn undertook. Critic Frank Nugent wrote, Bobby and Billy justify their twinship completely, not merely by investing the Twain legend of mistaken royal identity with a pleasing degree of credibility, but by playing their roles with such straightforwardness and naturalness that the picture becomes one of the most likable entertainments of the year. The novel and the screen have been bridged so gracefully we cannot resist saying that Twain and the movies have met. Director William Keeley was born on August the 4th, 1889, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA, and he died in 1984. William graduated from the Ludlow School of Dramatic Art and turned professional in 1912. He was inspired to be an actor when a baseball team he played with decided to put on a play to raise money for uniforms. His last job as an actor was in 1928. It was the coming of sound that inspired William to move to Hollywood to become a director. He achieved this ambition in 1932. Today, he is best remembered for being replaced by Michael Curtis during principal shooting for The Adventures of Robin Hood, 1938, for falling behind schedule. Director of photography Sol Polito was born on November the 12th, 1892, in Palermo, Sicily, and he died in 1960. Sol served a three-year apprenticeship in cinematography until he graduated to DOP for Rip Van Winkle, 1914. He went on to craft the Warner Brothers style in the 30s and 40s. Actors Billy and Bobby Maunch. Bobby Maunch was born on July the 6th, 1921, in Peoria, Illinois, USA, and he died in 2007. Billy Maunch was born on July the 6th, 1921, in Peoria, Illinois, USA, but he died in 2006. The twins were a singing duet on radio at the age of seven. This brought Billy to the attention of Warner Brothers, who signed the boys up. Bobby was to act as Billy's double. The first film was Anthony Adverse, 1936. They soon realized no one on set could tell them apart, so they mixed and matched who would do what on a day-by-day basis. This prank led them to being cast in The Prince and the Pauper, 1937. They then appeared in the Penrod series of films. In 1943, they served together through World War II fighting in the Pacific. This was due to a ruling from the U.S. military that twins could not be separated unless they requested it. Bobby came back from the war and tried to pick up his acting career, but nothing came of that. He became a film editor. Billy went straight to Warner Brothers to become a sound effects person. He worked on Them, 1954, and Bullet, 1968. Actor Clifford Seven was born on September the 1st, 1925, in Johannesburg, South Africa, and he died in 2014. Clifford's family immigrated to the USA shortly after he was born. If you'll excuse the sibilance, he had seven siblings who all became child actors. 
Clifford made his first film in 1935 and his last in 1944. Clifford played for the U.S. national cricket team. Births kept the stalks busy this year. On. January the 4th. Diane Cannon, U.S. director, screenwriter and actor. January the 12th. Margaret O'Brien, U.S. actor. January the 31st. Suzanne Plachette, the U.S. actor. March the 3rd. Bobby Driscoll, the U.S. actor who died in 1968. March the 30th. Warren Beatty, U.S. actor and director. April the 6th. Billy D. Williams, the U.S. actor. April the 22nd. Jack Nicholson, U.S. actor. June the 7th. Morgan Freeman, the U.S. actor. July the 6th, Ned Beatty, the U.S. actor who died in 2021. August the 8th, Dustin Hoffman, the U.S. actor and director. September the 7th, John Philip Law, the U.S. actor who died in 2008. December the 8th, James MacArthur, the U.S. actor who died 2010. December 21st, Jane Fonda, U.S. actor. Unwilling to confine myself to silence, I now bring you The Prisoner of Zender. Director John Cromwell and W.S. Van Dyke. Script John L. Borderstone, Edward E. Rose, Donald Ogden Stewart, Ben Hecht and Sidney Howard. Directors of Photography, James Wong Howe and Bert Glennon. Editor, James E. Newcomb. Actors, Ronald Coleman, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., David Niven, Madeline Carroll, C. Aubrey Smith, Mary Astor, Raymond Massey and Montague Love. This is an adaptation of a stage play that is, itself, an adaptation from a novel by Anthony Hope. The romance style fits into a mood of fantasy while toying with the realities of Europe of this time. The plot concerns Prince Rupert of Hensau and his schemes to take the throne from the king-designate. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. had auditioned to be the hero, Rudolf Rassendile, whose uncanny likeness to the king-designate allows Rupert's kidnapping of the king-designate to be foiled. Douglas lost the role to Ronald Coleman and was cast as Prince Rupert. Junior complained to his father and Senior pointed out, Not only is The Prisoner of Zender one of the best romances written in a hundred years and always a success, but Rupert of Hensau is probably one of the best villains ever written. Rupert is foiled by a British distaff cousin of the king who impersonates the inebriate king. The plan is fouled when the king is kidnapped. Rupert plans to use this fact to control the impersonator. The surprise of this film is Douglas Fairbanks Jr. as the charming, albeit ruthless, Hensel. His performance makes the film. 
because we are sympathetic to him, even when he's being the biggest creep in the picture, which is saying much when the second in line for that award is the king. The British pretender is out of his depth and must play decency when the rest of the cast are acting from self-interest. The closest in character to him is the one played by David Niven, whose character is that of cannon fodder. David Selznick managed to assemble one of the last great gatherings of Hollywood English until World War II, in part to cash in on the abdication of King Edward VIII. This was not necessarily a good thing. Director John Cromwell had a hissy fit at one point and walked off the set because he thought Ronald Coleman didn't know his lines and David Niven and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. were too hungover to perform. George Chukor stepped in as a temporary replacement. Director John Cromwell was born on December 23, 1886 in Toledo, Ohio, USA, and he died in 1979. John began his career as an actor, debuting on Broadway in 1912, in a show which became a hit. He branched out into directing plays while still pursuing an acting career. During the 19s, he is particularly noteworthy for bringing the works of George Bernard Shaw to the notice of New York audiences. By 1929, Hollywood was looking for actors and directors who could transition to sound. John was eager to take up this challenge. Between 1951 and 1958, he was blacklisted in Hollywood as part of Senator Joe McCarthy's attempt to introduce the principles of fascism into U.S. politics. Scriptwriter John L. Balderstone was born on October 22, 1889 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA and he died in 1954. While still a student at Columbia University, John began a career as the New York correspondent for the Philadelphia Record newspaper. During World War I, he worked as a European war correspondent, during which he covered the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb in Egypt, and then worked for the U.S. Committee on Public Information. I'm guessing this work wasn't very challenging, for in 1919, his play The Genius of Man had its debut. People began to take notice, and in 1927, he was hired to revise the 1924 stage adaptation of Dracula. This version turned Bela Lugosi into a star of the stage. He was then hired to adapt the British stage play of Frankenstein for U.S. audiences. I think you can guess where this is going. John's version of Dracula was made into the 1931 film. The adaptation of Frankenstein formed the basis for the 1931 film. He then contributed to The Mummy, 1932, and wrote an unused screenplay for The Invisible Man. Through the 30s, like many a writer in Hollywood, you'll find him cropping up as one of numerous people working on a script. He even wrote a film treatment for his novel, Red Planet, that was eventually released as Red Planet Mars, 1952. It took until 1953 to settle a lawsuit with Universal Pictures over the Frankenstein script. The contract paid $20,000 
plus 1% gross on any films that resulted from the work. There were many, many sequels. Universal had conveniently forgotten about that 1%. DOP James Wong Hao was born on August 28, 1899 in Taishan, China, and he died in 1976. His family emigrated to the U.S. in 1899 and settled in Washington. In 1904, James joined the family where his father had established himself with a general store. When he was 12, he bought a Kodak camera. His first experiments were unsuccessful. As a teenager, James wanted to become a prize fighter, which, I guess in part, was due to the racism that was a constant part of his childhood. He moved to Oregon, but soon had the desire to be a fighter knocked out of him. He moved to Los Angeles to work as an assistant to a commercial photographer. In Los Angeles, he hung around movie location shoots and made friends with a cameraman. One suggested he try to get a movie job. Taking up the suggestion, he was hired by the Jesse Lasky Studios. He used his menial position at the studio to become acquainted with movie cameras, lighting equipment and the film development process. By 1917, he had moved from editing room assistant to being the slate boy on Cecil B. DeMille Productions. James became a cameraman when DeMille wanted to use four cameras to shoot a scene and only had three cameramen available. By 1919, his talent for working a camera were being noted at Paramount. In particular, his ability to make the color blue register on this early black and white film stock. This made him the go-to cameraman for actors with blue eyes. In 1923, he was promoted to director of photography. James went to China to shoot some footage about that country for what he wanted to be his directorial debut. By the time he got back, Hollywood was a buzz with talkies. In particular, the buzz surrounded an odd, not to mention odious, ruling that only cameramen with experience shooting sound films would be allowed to work on sound films. It was director William K. Howard who challenged this ruling. He wanted James to shoot Transatlantic, 1931, and he got his way. In 1933, James signed a contract with MGM, then shifted to Warner Brothers in 1938, having gained a reputation for his control over low-contrast lighting of interiors. He is also known for his work in deep focus shots. During World War II, the racism became even harder to bear. He took to wearing a button that said, I am Chinese. Actor James Cagney wore the same button as a mark of solidarity. To add to his problems, he was in love with a white woman in a state where marriage between races was forbidden, until the law was repealed in 1949. Strangely, the country was not swamped with Chinese men wanting to marry white women. <laughs> As if white women could get that lucky. After the war, although not blacklisted or asked to give testimony to HUAC, he came under scrutiny for working with Reds, Pinks and their fellow travellers. Hollywood put him on a grey list, using the excuse that he was hard to work with. That was not 
all racist bullshit. He did have a temper on him. In the late 50s, he pushed his way through to be recognized as one of the top in his profession. He said, Zooms are for commercials. And noted, 99% of the people in Hollywood go through life and never say what they mean. Deaths were the road bump in 1937. On. January 2nd, Ross Alexander, the US actor born 1907. January 13th, Martin Johnson, US documentarian born 1884. March 15th, H.P. Lovecraft, US author born 1890. April the 7th, Helen Burgess, U.S. actor, born 1916. April the 10th, Ralph Ince, U.S. director, born 1887. April the 29th, William Gillette, U.S. actor, born 1853. June the 7th, Jean Harlow, U.S. actor, born 1911. July the 11th, George Gershwin, U.S. composer, born 1898. December the 4th, Ralph Lewis, U.S. actor, born 1872. December the 21st, Ted Healy, U.S. actor, born 1896. For the next episode, break out the lube for its alien intruders from 1957. Humanity, eh? Just needs to bend over and take it like a man. For more Movie Chronicles awesomeness, check out the Movie Chronicles series of books at an e-store near you. And don't forget to become a pod person by joining me on Patreon or Buzzsprout. Remember, you'll never flower unless you're one of us.